Hello listeners and welcome to the AfriWetu podcast where we look to celebrate African history, people and culture by telling our story. As always, our hope is that it fills you with enough curiosity to go and do your own deeper research. Karibuni to any new listeners to the Everywhere to World. We invite you to check out previous Everywhere to episodes, which can be found on this podcast platform. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, we're headed back to Southern Africa for part two of the Lundu Kingdom. A shout out to my Southern Africans out there. Everywhere to is back on your shores. Before we begin... Please remember to visit us on our socials. Our handle is at Afriwetu, where we shall be posting interesting facts, stories, updates, and links for further study for all you lovely people. But for now, just sit back and enjoy the journey. <laughs> Kolo wakenda ni mwana yu anzanga Akumango choka ni kumango bwela mbanda kucha Lisinko yake itabindi kina mapunziro Iendi kasu wakumunda kusaka mbewa Bewa As usual, for the last civilization this series Get your maps out and get ready to track where we are today. So if you look at the southeastern part of the map, there close to the coast, trace your way down to the Zambezi River and our kingdom spanned that whole region. It held influence further north up along the East African coastline, which accounted for its wealth that was generated by trade because this, to be honest, was a very lucrative trading region. So let's do a very quick recap of part one. So in part one, we looked at the origins, origin of the Lundu, showing the linkage to the past Maravi civilizations of Karonga's Maravi Empire, the Undu Kingdom, and the Kafuiti Kingdom. In it, we also covered the background and mentioned the Zimba and Muzura, whom we shall meet today. Then we spoke of the expansion of the Lundu and how the kingdom leveraged on its wealth and access to key routes. This was strongly linked not just to its military, which we shall look at today, but also as being a giant trader in the region. We went into understanding the kingdom's societal makeup, the matrilineal nature of it, husbands moving to their wives' villages, for example, and how this was also reflected in the nobility right up to the Lundu, who was chosen from the matrilineal side. To be honest, it was a fun episode to share with you all. And as we continue in this episode, we shall uncover a few more layers of this kingdom and see how beautifully complex and rich this history is as we enjoy this journey to the past. But now let's move to look at a key part of any civilization, that of religion. So the Manyanja believed in a supreme being and benevolent deity who lived among the stars, very similar to other Maravi, the Chiuta or Mulungu are the more recognized names. 
They did have other deities, but he was the most important and significant as he was considered to be the creator of all things, whereas the other spirits had mortal links, being those who had passed on and become the ancestors. They too were held in high regard and considered as the intercessors between them and Chuta. The most important function of the supreme being was sending rain as it meant food in the form of harvest. This emphasis on rain could also be seen in the importance placed on rain callers. So when he was pleased, the rains came as a sign of this. And so it was true in the converse. When he was angry or displeased, there'd be drought, infertility and other natural catastrophes that were also attributed to St. Anger. The cause for his curses ranged from a myriad of sins, one of the most serious being the practice of witchcraft. To appease the supreme being, offerings of crops and livestock were made. One of the places these were made were the sacred rain shrines, such as the Mbona Shrine at Kulumvi Forest. It was here that the Mbona was said to live, and we shall hear a little bit more about him in the next section. But in summary, he was the go-between, the medium, if you will, between the people and Chuta. He himself was not to be seen, and ritualists would communicate to him through his own medium, who happened to be a woman appointed as his wife. She lived in the mountains, and the people would tell her of their needs, requests, and then she in turn would take them to the Mbona, communing with him in her sleep. And before we look into the Mbona, a quick interesting thing to note, that unlike the other Maravi polities, the Lundu, the ruler, was not the sole spiritual authority. He shared this role with the Mbona. It's a good time to go and meet Mbona. And in order to do this, let's get ready to travel back in time. We find ourselves at the feet of an old woman. Others are gathered around. We shuffle along to make room for the latecomers. Settling in, she begins. I see you're all here. Welcome to meet the ancestors. And today, we shall hear the story of one of our most important ancestors, the Mbona, the Rainmaker. I know some of you have heard this story before and others have heard versions similar to the one I shall tell. And this is only right because the ways of our ancestors can be winding but they all lead to the same path. A long time ago, in the days of the ancestors, our lands faced a dreadful drought. The gods had withheld the rain, our people were suffering and all was doomed. The Lundu had called on all the land's rain callers to plead with our ancestors to bring the rain. Ceremonies were held at the Kasisi, our spiritual house. Libations were poured, offerings were given, songs and dance. The drums played their beats felt throughout the lands, reverberating through the forests, the mountains and the plains. Nothing worked. It all failed. The official rainmakers, trying as they might, chanting as they did, pleading as much as they could, the ancestors did not respond. Until one day, our hero appeared in their circle. But first, 
Let's go back. Who was this man? Mbona was suspected to be of noble heritage. In fact, in some corners, he was considered to be the Lundu's son. But he was not recognized as such. In other circles, he was called the son of Chembe, the Lundu's sister. Either way, he was not an insider nor an accepted noble. So for sure, even the rain callers and the, cons- and the Lundu considered him an outsider, a nobody in their eyes. So what he did next incensed them. He found his way with a cult of his own initiative, we shall never know, but there he was in the circles at the main shrine's courtyard. And then he danced, he sang, he called on the ancestors. It was riveting to watch. He had everyone's intention. And next thing, the clouds gathered, the wind blew, flashes of lightning, sounds of thunder, and then rain. And not just any rain, but a real and full downpour. The rivers and the lakes were filled, the land dry for so long, thirstily soaked up all the water that fell on it. The ancestors had rewarded Mbona. The Indunas were not pleased. How were they bettered by this outsider? And so they plotted to bring him down. They went to the Lundu and told him what had happened and that in fact it had been Mbona who had caused the drought, only to take credit using the power of witchcraft, which was shunned and strictly forbidden. Lundu who was said to be jealous that it was not his own rain calling that could end the drought, had found even more reason to get rid of Mbona. So he then ordered Mbona to prove his innocence by drinking the Muabi poisoned drink. Mbona refused, which basically equaled his guilt. So he fled Mbewe Wamitengo and headed south with one of his four wives. Lundu then ordered his men to pursue and kill Mbona. The hunters were led by one of Mbona's own king, Singala. Along his way, Mbona's imprint was seen. On reaching the hills, he rested and where he sat, his foot and bum imprints on the rock can still be seen today. He struck his two spears, leaving his mark. He is said to have created a never-ending supply of water in a well within the rock to quench his thirst. It is an epic tale of how he survived. But for today, we shall leave this here and come back again soon, huh? For the story of his adventures, okay? But for here now, let's get to his capture and execution. The hunters eventually caught up with Mbona, but even they needed his help to kill him. It is said that he shared with them the secret of how to do so. They had tried using all methods conventional, but each time their weapons had failed. Luckily for them though, Aumbona was willing to accept his fate. And so he shared with them the secret to defeating him. They followed his advice and indeed they won. They beheaded him and went back triumphantly to the Lundu. Is that the end? No, 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 no. That was not the end. Oh, not so. Disaster 
fell upon the hunters. They were struck by lightning and only one survived to tell the tale. This shook the Lundu to the core and he repented. And to this day, Lundus revere Aumbona and on ascension to the throne, they are said to be crowned at a specific rock. A shrine was built, his own Kasisi, to honor him and appease him, for he was able to make it rain, which as we know is a very special power. The Mbona followers are with us, they are keepers of his shrine. Look around. The sacrifices which need to be made, it is they who take care of his wife, a woman of purity selected by the Lundu to live at the shrine. And with that, I see our time together is almost done. Please be sure to come back again and I shall tell you of his epic adventures. And in a flash, she and the ancient world disappear and we're back to our time. So let us leave this here and head over to see the military before we end with the demise, but very quickly. Now remember we heard that there were other versions Afri Wet would love to hear from the Lundu descendants, their versions. Share them with us on any of our socials. And now we get to the second last section for the kingdom, the soldiers and military might. At the start of this story, the Lundu in part one, we noted that this kingdom was closely linked to the Zimba. And it is here we get to unpack who they are and how they fit into this history. By the height of the kingdom's power, it had conquered a great deal of the neighboring kingdoms and grown in territory. And it had done so with a fairly comprehensive expansion plan and a powerful military. All the commanders and generals of the latter were filled by the junior kingsmen of the royal clan to keep it in the family. Also to ensure a sense of loyalty and keep everything centralized. The force of the armies and the warriors who composed of the army were not just the Maravi Manyanja, but also, yep, our Zimba, who were not strictly speaking from the kingdom's clan. So I guess that's a good place to start. Who were they exactly? So there are a few theories as to the Zimba's origins. We can find a common thread in the prevailing theories that they were not indigenous to the area and were, depending on who you speak to, either fugitives, disaffected people, migrants for one reason or another. They, regardless, set up their base on the southern banks of the Zambezi. And it is here where they then created their own military-based community. The social structure, or I guess one could argue the command structure, was led at the top by a king to whom they were fiercely loyal. The king, some say his name was Tundu, was elevated to an almost demigod status. His people believed him to be the best and the greatest. He commanded the weather and determined when it would or would not rain. He was also said to control the sky. And in fact, it is said that when it angered him, the sky that is, he would shoot at it with an arrow as a sign of his displeasure. It's worth noting that some claim that the king they speak of is actually the Lundu, but it's, this may be a misunderstanding of the actual structure. It would be great to hear from our fam who descend from the Zimba what their thoughts are. The Zimba were known and feared as an army up and down the east coast of the continent, and they were conquering cities as far up north as Mombasa and Kiwa, key trading ports. 
And although here, though, we do know that they met their match in Malindi as we were defeated by a joint force of the Swahili and the Segeju peoples. Yay, East Africans. Okay, back to it. They operated as a mercenary army, a highly skilled and deadly force aligned to the Lundu. With their backing, he was able to further establish his dominance in the region. This linkage between the two has in recent years had more information unearthed that suggests the Lundu was a key player in the formation of the Zimba force and he could exert a level of influence over them, but only insofar as their objectives were aligned. Let's be clear. And this is where we see them in the kingdom story. As for a period, these objectives were very aligned and the Lundu used Zimba in his battles against the interloper colonialists like the Europeans and others. There is actually a battle with the former that I think is worth sharing here, just because it's a dope story that reflects as well their fierceness and the respect or fear they instilled in the enemy. This is based on an eyewitness account of such an enemy, a European. Following a battle, the Zimba had fought and won. They were gearing up for the next one. And as a preamble to their enemy, the Zimba decided to parade and showcase their spoils of war. So they came out drumming with loud, thunderous chants. You can imagine the fearful sound if you're on the opposing side. But that was just the start because then they came out with a king up front, dressed in finery, carrying a golden chalice and assegai. He was followed by soldiers who were carrying, get this, the chopped up limbs, arms and legs of their defeated European enemies. And the chariot at the top, literally, was when one of the higher ranking soldiers was spotted holding a spear, which atop it was a captain's severed head. Proving their point, basically, this will happen to you should you dare to proceed and fight with us. The Portuguese slunk back and retreated at night. But the Zimba were not going to let them go off that easily. They were the enemy after all and had not proven honorable. So in the same night, the Zimba attacked and killed the men. There was a later retaliation around 1593 by the Portuguese. But this again failed. And on their retreat, the Zimba again fell upon them and were victorious. So one has to ask, with this structure, wealth, and now formidable army, what on earth happened? Well, let's head over to the last section, the demise. As with the Undu Kingdom, the Lundu's demise is also linked to the larger Moravi Empire's fall, which you're all aware of by now, right? Because you've all listened to the previous episodes, yes? For this episode, we shall center on the Lundu's particular demise. Cool? The demise was not one single thing that brought a whole kingdom down, but a gradual decline in dominance that in the final years was hastened by a number of things. For our purposes today, we shall highlight two flashpoints. The first is the Muzura, the second is the Makua civilizations. So starting with Muzura. Now, his origins are a bit blurry, but one thing is clear. He was not from the ruling clans of the Manyanja peoples. He was regarded as a powerhouse, second only to the Lundu in the region. By 1608, he had built his own kingdom, having united a number of smaller states, amassed wealth and influence. 
This status brought him to the attention and he was courted by the colonialists who enlisted him to help them in their fight against the Lundu and other African polities. He became one of their key allies in the region for a time. His key contribution to our kingdom's demise is that in 1622, together with the colonialists, they defeated the Lundu kingdom in battle, which made him de facto the most powerful man in the area. This defeat also meant that the Lundu kingdom and the Lundu moved down to second place in terms of power and dominance. Ouch. And this is when things were really starting to fall apart as it was weakened in the attacks that came through from rivals, including the Makua. But before we leave Muzura, his alliance ended in the course of, or at the very least, almost immediately after the Lundu's defeat. And then he combined forces with another, Chombe, to fight the colonialists. I know, right? But that is a whole other story for another day. Back to Alundu, who's now in second place and being very vulnerable to attacks coming in the form of the Makuelolo. As we already know, by the 1600s to 1700s, there were a number of issues plaguing the Maravi Empire as a whole. One of these issues was the thorns of rebellion and resistance from the smaller kingdoms who were agitating for their own independence. For the Lundu, one of their thorns was the Makua. The Makua were already fighting against the colonialists on their shores, especially against the unfair trade practices and encroachment of their lands using their divide and conquer tactics. It was a nationalist movement, well-armed, having bought arms from the coastal traders, and it was quite successful. To be honest, it was only a matter of time before they turned inland to shake off the shackles of the empire's hold. It is believed that their success then inspired and spurned them as they focused their campaign to independence from the Lundu, seeing a chance as it had been weakened. And then this plus other factors saw the Lundu decline further, and by the mid-19th century, the center of power had become no more than a shell of its former self. And with the death of Sagonja Lundu, who by all accounts was an old, frail man, and the last of the Lundus, he was killed on the instigation of the Kololo. So what else was going on in the world at this time? So, in 1755, the Great Lisbon Earthquake destroys most of Portugal's capital and kills up to 100,000 people. I know I've shared this one before, but it's so fascinating. Between 1772 and 1795, the partitions of Poland end and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth erase Poland for the, from the map for 123 years. Fascinating, no? Then between 1762 and 1806, one Thomas Alexandre Dumas-Davy lived. He was a general in the French army during the revolution. He was from Saint Dominique, which is now Haiti and the Dominican Republic. He had a black mother and a white father. He was the first person of color to achieve the rank of general in France and tied for the highest ranking officer of sub-Saharan African descent in the West ever until, believe this or not, 1975. And lastly, in 1807, George Bridgewater, who is half Caribbean, 
and was an exceptionally talented violinist, was elected into the Royal Society of Musicians. Here, he performed with the Royal Philharmonic Society Orchestra. And now, to bring it home, for the last time for Civilization in Series 4, we have come, Afriwetu, to the end of the last of the Kalongo, Undi and Lundu. It has been quite a journey, right? But before I leave you with a thought or two, I have a request. If any of you know of any African military studies in literature written and studied in the same depth and the same detail and respect as other military studies are done, please feel free to share them on our socials. Just the very, very little on the Zimba that I shared here and that I studied was enough to spark my own deeper research into pre-colonial African military history. Afriwetu would love to share any resources you have out there. And now from one dope finding to another, the story of the Mbona. This is one that Afriwetu is planning to explore in the future and if at all possible, have a separate Legends episode. It is an epic tale. We shall find our way back to him and find our old woman to tell us a story, right? The story of these ancestors was truly unexpected. From the vast Maravi Empire to learning about two powerful kingdoms within it, seeing how our history is not just some plain linear concept, but one that is overlain with complexity, depth, twists, turns, and riches. I mean, it's wow. As I always say, I do urge you to keep scratching the surface. Afriwetu is here to pique your interest, start you on your journey so that you can go and do your own deeper research. And until next time, Mubarikiwe! Sipana pwanti sipanzo, opanda songa.